Better late than never, as they say. Welcome to The Backdrop. Hey everyone, Curtis here, getting this episode of The Backdrop out to you a bit, well, no, a lot later than intended. Between the kids being off school for a week at Thanksgiving and the ongoing church office construction project going on in our backyard, uh, well, the workflow has become more of a triage situation, I guess you could say, but we're going to try and get back on track here. We are a few weeks into our series on Matthew on Sundays called What Matthew Saw which means we have to play some backdrop catch-up. So here's the plan. This episode will be a sort of intro to Matthew, looking at some of the nuts and bolts about the setting, the authorship, the genre, the themes, stuff that will help us orient ourselves as we begin this gospel. Then next week, we'll put out two episodes. At least that's the plan. (laughs) One that looks at chapters one and two, which is what we have looked at these past couple Sundays, and then one that looks at chapters three and four, which we started with a few weeks back. And that should get us back on track going into Christmas. Thanks for your patience. (laughs) If you've never joined us for a Backdrop episode before, welcome. Our hope in putting these together is twofold. First, to help us understand the book we are studying on Sundays in more depth, getting into some of the cultural and historical background that fills things out, and stuff we just don't have time to get to on Sunday mornings. Um, and sometimes it's on a whole different topic than the one we pursue in the sermon. And so this podcast offers a place for all that. Second, I really have fun studying all this stuff. And I know that some of you do as well. So I get the luxury of being able to take time diving into all this, when I'm not building a shed, that is. And then I get to share it with all of you. In other words, if you're a Bible, Bible nerd, you're in the right place. With all that said, let's get into our introduction to Matthew. First, some of the basics. Who wrote this book? Why? Where? When? What exactly is it? Matthew has been, for most of the history of the church, the most popular and most widely used of the Gospels. That's a big reason why it was placed first, actually, when the order of the books of the New Testament was formalized. And actually, let's start there with the term gospel. What exactly is a gospel? We've got four of them in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the first three of them have a lot more similarities and overlap than the fourth, but we'll come back to that in a little bit. When we hear gospel, that's what we're likely to think of, the first four books of the New Testament. But gospel was kind of a new thing when these books were written. There wasn't like an established genre of gospels um, that existed prior to their writing. What did exist and what the gospels are largely patterned after, with a few changes, were biographies, bios, of great figures of the time. And what made for a good biography in the ancient world is in some ways similar, but not exactly the same thing as what we might look for in a good biography today. As the scholars Marianne Mai Thompson and Joel Green say in their introduction to the New Testament, in antiquity, a biography related the significance of a famous person's career, rarely focusing on his childhood, but often including references to the way he died, for how a person died was regarded as a measure of his character. And yes, it was always he at the time. Biographies were intended to show why a person was significant and how their character might be imitated or emulated by the readers. And therefore, the goal was not to tell everything about a person, but only those things that best reveal the character and virtues of the subject. And we can absolutely see this in the Gospels, including Matthew, that they kind of just drop us into the story of 
30-something-year-old Jesus focus heavily on the final weeks of his life and are absolutely designed to encourage us to imitate Jesus. The Gospels introduce us to Jesus, tell us why he matters, and invite us to, as Jesus says in Matthew, follow him. And that purpose, the why of Matthew's writing, gives us some clues as to who it was written for. There are several indications that Matthew's written for a heavily Jewish audience, but one that's probably in conversation with the wider Greek world. Matthew focuses a lot on the reactions of different Jewish people, including the leaders and the crowds, to Jesus, and often writes using a more Jewish vocabulary than do some of the other Gospels, especially Mark and Luke. The most obvious example of this is that where Mark and Luke use the phrase kingdom of God, Matthew changes it, usually, to kingdom of heaven. As we've said before, this is likely in deference to the Jewish practice of not saying the name of God, but using a euphemism like the Lord or heaven as a stand-in. There's every indication that Jesus used kingdom of God when he was speaking, which is what we will usually use as well when we're talking about it. But Matthew translates it to heaven, presumably because that would better speak to his intended audience. There are also in Matthew innumerable direct quotes and references to the Old Testament, enough that it's pretty apparent that the author expected his readers to be pretty familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, especially the prophets. So it's a safe assumption that a mainly Jewish audience was being imagined by the author of this book. You'll notice I'm saying the author mostly here, not Matthew. That's because we really have no idea who wrote this book. It isn't signed or dated So why is it called Matthew? Well, the earliest mention of Matthew, the tax collector member of the 12 disciples, who's also called Levi, being the author of this book is in the writings of a guy named Papias, who was a bishop in the Greek city of Hierapolis in the early second century. His writings are from the 95 to 130 AD region. In other words, within like 30 to 50 years of when this gospel was written, And he says it was written by Matthew. So maybe it was. As one of the scholars we're using to study for this series points out, there were certainly more obvious and prominent apostles to attribute this book to if someone wanted to just make something up and make this gospel seem important, like Peter or Paul or someone like that. At the very least, it seems likely that some of the material in the gospel itself does go back to Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, even if the actual compilation of the book as a whole might have been done by someone else or someone who learned from Matthew, for example. Okay, so now when was it written? Again, there isn't any way to know for sure. It's not dated. But most scholars put the date of its writing somewhere after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Because some of the ways the temple is talked about in the book itself seem to indicate that Matthew expects his readers to know that the temple is no more. But as we just saw, It was a widely known gospel, very popular all over the Greek world by the turn of the first century. So it can't have been written too much later than 70 AD if it was going to get dispersed that quickly. Kind of along with that discussion, it can be helpful to know how this gospel relates to the other gospels of Mark and Luke. If you've read them, you know that there is a lot of overlap often word for word, in the material in these three Gospels. They're sometimes called the synoptic Gospels. And the reason why there is this overlap is that the authors of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're using similar written and oral sources to put together their stories. Most scholars agree that Mark was written first, and that Matthew and Luke 
both used the finished Gospel of Mark to put together their own stories about Jesus, taking and editing some of what Mark wrote for their own uses. One of the reasons Matthew is assumed to be after Mark and not vice versa is that Matthew's Greek is much better than Mark's Greek. Mark's is very rough around the edges. He starts a lot of sentences with and and immediately, for example. And so it makes a lot more sense that a more educated Matthew cleans up the prose in Mark than the other way around. Also, Matthew tends to what some scholars uh, call re-Judaize Mark's material, meaning Jesus originally is working and speaking in a Jewish environment, likely using the language of Aramaic. Mark then translates some of that culture and language to be more understandable by a more Greek-leaning audience. But then in Matthew, we see the author taking Mark's words and moving it back in a more Jewish way. So between all that, since most scholars put Mark in the 50s or 60s, Matthew must have been written after that. So Matthew and Luke use Mark's gospel to help write their own. And then there are other overlaps that only occur between Matthew and Luke, but don't come from Mark. And those are usually explained by guessing that both Matthew and Luke had another written collection of stories about Jesus that they both used independently. This is sometimes called Q by scholars as just kind of a a stand-in name. This is just a guess, though, because no one's ever found a copy of Q independent from the Gospels. It is possible that they both had access to similar oral traditions or that one of them used the other as a source. We don't really know. But we can sometimes look at the ways that Matthew changes Mark's accounts to see the different goals that Matthew had as opposed to what Mark was going for. So as far as the date goes, Matthew must have been after Mark and before Papias, which puts it somewhere between 60 and 90 A.D., most scholars put it in the 70s or 80s as their best guess, and they tend to look to cities in Galilee or Syria as the likely place where it was written, since they have the right mix of Jewish and Greek populations to, for, to reflect the story Matthew seems to be telling. So to sum all that up, the Gospel of Matthew was most likely written by the disciple of Jesus, Matthew, or one of his followers, in the 70s or 80s AD in Galilee or Syria or thereabouts to a group of urban followers of Jesus who were mostly Jewish for the purpose of introducing who Jesus was and why and how people ought to follow him. It was meant to inspire them to live like Jesus and to invite others to follow Jesus with them. And since that's what we want to be doing too, it makes sense to see for ourselves what Matthew saw, don't you think? So let's now turn in that light, to some of the major themes that we will see as we move through this book together. First, one that we have mentioned already, Matthew makes heavy use of the Old Testament and refers back to Old Testament themes, passages, stories, figures, almost constantly. Jesus is consistently portrayed as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But, and this is important, It isn't that Matthew sat down with all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and then found corresponding actions by Jesus in fulfilling them. In fact, it seems to have been exactly the reverse. Jesus does some weird stuff, and Matthew cycles through his mental Rolodex of Old Testament passages to find something there that corresponds and explains why Jesus did that weird stuff. Let's take the virgin birth as an example. Some dismiss it as a made-up story that's just shoehorned in to fit an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah. But the problem with that is that the Messiah being produced by a virgin 
was not an expectation prior to Jesus. No one was expecting that to be how the Messiah came. And so it wouldn't have made any sense for a story to have been made up by the early Christians to satisfy some non-existent expectation. They expected the Messiah to be born in the regular old way. But then Jesus came along and there were these stories that he wasn't born the regular old way in a way that there was no parallel for in Jewish or Roman expectation. Roman gods sometimes were said to take on human form to get someone pregnant, but that very much involved sex. (laughs) This story was one of a kind. And so Matthew and the others pondered this strange story. And that's when the Holy Spirit brought to mind an obscure passage from Isaiah about how God would act on Israel's behalf back then and would act soon in the time it took for a then unmarried girl to get married and bear a child. It's a passage that does not mean anything about a virgin birth in its original context. It wasn't seen as part of messianic prophecy prior to Matthew, but it did resonate with Jesus's birth, now that you mention it. Jesus is portrayed as the new Moses, who will lead a new exodus, who goes up on a mountain and teaches like Moses. Many scholars see the way that Matthew is organized, where there are five main teaching chunks interspersed with action and stories and miracles, and they see an intentional parallel with the Torah, the five books of Moses. Jesus is portrayed as a new David, the king that has been promised to carry on the line of David, although in a surprising way. Jesus is portrayed as a new Solomon, with Matthew probably more than any of the other gospels bringing Jesus's wisdom to the foreground. Jesus is a prophet in the mold of Jeremiah or Isaiah, who speaks to the religious leaders of his day in much the same way that the prophets did in their day. The warnings of wrath to come and the criticisms of the actions of the elite are directly referencing what we saw in the book of Jeremiah last year, if you were with us for that. Jesus goes into the temple and clears it out while quoting Jeremiah's words against the temple in his day, with the clear implication being that just like that first temple was destroyed, just like Jeremiah said it would be, even so this second temple is going to be destroyed, except by the Romans this time, which actually happened in AD 70 roughly 40 years after Jesus's crucifixion. You can read Matthew as showing Jesus to be largely in continuity with the tradition of the prophets and his conflict with the rulers and religious leaders of the day is a continuation of Jeremiah's fight with the false prophets of his own day. Now this flows into another theme that runs through Matthew, which is the way that the conflict and contrasts between the characters and how they react to Jesus is meant to provide models and instructions for the readers. You have the religious leaders who react with hostility, the crowds who are at first intrigued and eager to hear what Jesus has to say, but over time, like some of the seed in the parable of the sower, start to fall away when the going gets hard. Then you have the disciples who react with faith, although imperfectly, of course. And then you have the individuals, sometimes Gentiles, who are models of faith. Craig Keener sees in these contrasts a message to the original readers of Matthew who in their own lives were dealing with a similar sense of being stuck in the middle of many competing audiences who reacted to them and their message in these different ways. I thought this point that Keener makes was really interesting. He writes, Matthew writes to Jewish Christians who, in addition to being part of their assemblies as believers in Jesus, are fighting to remain part of their local synagogue communities. Modern scholars sometimes leave the impression that a Jewish believer in Jesus could leave Judaism as easily as a person can today leave, let's say, the Methodist church for the Episcopalian. But to leave Judaism meant to move from one society to another. 
It involved the painful severing not only of family and cultic ties, but being cut off from the whole life of a community upon which one was socially and economically dependent. And so Matthew's stories about the conflicts and contrasts of how people reacted to Jesus would have been, in part, meant to convey a message of hope and solidarity to Jesus's followers, the readers of Matthew, who were being confronted with the same sorts of dynamics themselves. Which, again, leads us to the next theme in Matthew, discipleship. Matthew is written, as we've hinted at before, as a kind of manual for discipleship, a way for followers of Jesus to know what following means and how it is done, what challenges to expect and how to meet them in a way that aligns with who Jesus is. This is why there is so much emphasis on Jesus's teachings, most famously the Sermon on the Mount in chapters five to seven, but really throughout the gospel. Jesus's final words are for his followers to go and make disciples, teaching them to do all that Jesus has taught them to do. Matthew is written in an environment where, as is always the case, following Jesus, putting our trust in God, is hard for people who are pulled in any number of directions. And Jesus' teaching is a central part of fleshing out what it means to trust in Yahweh. Along these lines is another theme, the mission to the Gentiles. While Gentiles don't take quite as central a place as they do in Luke and Acts, they certainly show up a lot for a gospel that is primarily written for a Jewish audience. The first people to recognize Jesus as king are the Magi from the East. Much of the action takes place in what's called Galilee of the Gentiles, a place where Jewish and Greek cultures were mixed in a way that wasn't the case in most other places of the Roman Empire. Many of those who show great faith come from the ranks of Gentiles. Matthew is trying very hard to expand the imaginations of his Jewish Christian readers to show them that reaching out with the good news And teaching the Gentiles the ways of discipleship is an essential part of discipleship. Next, I wanted to briefly introduce some of the main cast of characters who show up in this and the other Gospels. This may be review for some of you, but it can be helpful for us, as we are 2,000 years removed, not to hold on to some of the kind of cartoonish pictures of these figures. Um, And for this, I'm relying on the first of N.T. Wright's major scholarly volumes called The New Testament and the People of God. Each of these groups had different ideas about what it meant to be a Jew in Judea under Roman occupation. So first, we have the most famous of these groups, the Pharisees. These are often the source of conflict with Jesus and the target of some of his harshest words. They were a group of Jews who were largely devoted to following the Torah and especially the purity codes in the Torah, as they understood them. They, according to Wright and others, looked at the situation of being under the oppression of the Romans and drew the conclusion, as informed by the Old Testament prophets, that the impurity, the sin of the people, must be the explanation. God has not restored us fully because we have not been holy enough. And included in this assessment of the situation is kind of an implicit critique of the temple system itself, Clearly, the temple is not leading the people the right direction, so we need to take matters into our own hands. Because of this, the Pharisees seem to have had more influence away from the temple, that is, outside of Jerusalem and kind of the further reaches of Judea, which is right where Jesus spent most of his life as well. Wright says that they were, quote, in this period of time, in all probability, reasonably numerous, reasonably widespread, and reasonably influential, although they didn't 
have any formal power themselves. Whatever power or influence they had would have come from allying themselves with people who did have power and influence. But their understanding, their position, was that God would only come through on behalf of Israel if Israelites would get their lives in order, which we can kind of see in the types of critiques that they level at Jesus. You aren't being pure enough. You're violating the Sabbath. You're leading the people away from what God wants. As Wright says, when faced with social, political, and cultural pollution at the level of national life as a whole, one natural reaction was to concentrate on personal cleanness, to cleanse and purify the area over which one did have control as a compensation for the impossibility of cleansing or purifying an area, the outward and visible political one, over which one had none. Now, the problem, of course, is that this isn't, in fact, what God wanted. And that's the source of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Wright goes on to say that while the Pharisees were never a Jewish thought police in the first or any other century, they did concern themselves with matters wider than private or ritual purity. These concerns often embraced political and revolutionary action. That is, they tried to be as personally pure as possible. They encouraged others to be as personally pure as possible and... They had the long-time goal of purifying the land by driving out the Romans. There was no unified group of Pharisees, but a much looser confederation, some of whom might have emphasized more the personal side of this agenda, some of them more the political side. Now, another group, briefly, that, that doesn't directly appear much in the Gospels, but you can kind of see some echoes of, and who would have shared some of the perspectives of the Pharisees, was a group called the Essenes. They took the perspectives of the Pharisees to the extreme. We need to remove ourselves from this polluted society completely and form our own community out in the wilderness where we will work on our own purity and wait for God to act. God will destroy all this corruption and reward us for our holiness. They were sort of a pre-monasticism monastic movement of sorts. Now, another group that does show up in Matthew are the Sadducees. While they are sometimes grouped with the Pharisees in our minds, they were in fact very much opposed to the Pharisees. What they shared was an opposition to Jesus, but that doesn't mean they agreed with each other. The Sadducees are largely made up of the chief priests and aristocracy of the time. They were fundamentally conservative in the sense of preserving the status quo, which was working just fine for them. Thank you very much. Uh, N.T. Wright sums up their philosophy in part as Israel's God will help those who help themselves. In other words, the perpetual position of the privileged. They were largely in collusion with the Roman government, and they enjoyed the benefits of that collusion. The Sadducees clung tightly to what is written in the Pentateuch, primarily, and they had no interest in the traditions that had built up around the Old Testament text itself. Among other things, this meant that they did not believe in the resurrection, in contrast to the Pharisees, because that idea really doesn't show up in the Old Testament. So their opposition to Jesus was not that he wasn't keeping pure enough, like the Pharisees, It was that Jesus was stirring up trouble. He was going to bring retribution from Rome if too many people started following him. And that, of course, would be bad news for the status quo. (laughs) One final group worth mentioning here briefly is the others. (laughs) All the rest of the ordinary first century Jews living in Judea. The people the Pharisees would have looked down on as sinners who weren't able to keep the purity that God required of them. The people who the Sadducees saw as needing to be kept in line, filling their own coffers and that of Rome through their work in the fields. These people, as it isn't too surprising to hear, really, according to N.T. Wright, would have, quote, kept more or less to their biblical laws, prayed to their ancestral deity, and regulated their lives so as to emphasize the regular feasts and fasts of the calendar. 
They were not likely, he says, to have been deeply reflective theologians. But these are the people that Jesus spends most of his time with. Now, finally, let's talk about what is maybe the main theme from the book of Matthew, which is the coming of the kingdom of God, or heaven, to use Matthew's term. We'll return to this theme over and over in our time in this book, because it shows up all the time, and we'll flesh it out in our sermons along the way. But for now, let me give a brief overview using Michael Green's commentary on Matthew. Green writes that the kingdom of God phrase is used in four ways. First, it expresses the ultimate sovereignty of God over his world. Second, it stakes a claim. We, his creatures, should serve this king. Third, it describes the realm or place in which his kingly rule is acknowledged. And fourth, it points to a future when God will be all in all and his will shall be done on earth as in heaven. This last point shows us a kingdom that is, as some scholars have said, already and not yet. It's already here in the person of Jesus and in his followers, but it's not yet come in all its fullness because that future when all will recognize God's kingly rule has not come. It's both eternal and time-bound. There has always been and will always be a place where God is treated as king, but that place is not here, not now, not yet, not fully. So to sum it up, the kingdom of God is the place where God is treated like a king, where people do as he says, live according to his guidance, but, and this is a crucial but, God's kingdom is not like earthly kingdoms. In earthly kingdoms, disobedience is punished, and dissenters are forced to get into line by violence. God's kingdom is voluntary, an invitation for us to accept freely rather than a line to toe under threat of punishment. Jesus brings that sort of kingdom, is that sort of king. That's what Matthew is inviting us into, to follow Jesus in the way of the kingdom of God, a king who is lowly and humble, loving and gracious, offering life and joy and peace. So that's what we hope to do as we study what Matthew saw in this series. What is this kingdom like? And how might we live into it together? Thanks for listening to The Backdrop. I know this intro pod was a little on the long side. We'll be back with an episode on chapters one and two, and then three and four after that. And I hope you'll join us for them as well. Merry Christmas to all of you who won't be joining us at 7 p.m. on Christmas Eve. But if you'd like to, you can find a Zoom link to that on our website. That's all for now. Bye. Bye.